If you buy something today, particularly if you buy something online, um, you have a much greater opportunity to, to know what you're getting beforehand than, than people did even 10, 15 years ago. Uh, because likely you can go find hundreds if not thousands of reviews of that product. Um, whether you're buying something off Amazon, uh, going to have a meal and looking at TripAdvisor or something like that, or looking at a vacation and looking at Hotels.com or Booking.com or something like that. You can go find the reviews of hundreds and usually thousands of other people who have bought that product or ate at that restaurant or stayed at that hotel. And if something is truly bad or gross or not what it appears, you can likely know up front and not be fooled, which of course has changed the nature of marketing. If you're in the realm of marketing, you have a much more difficult task because it doesn't matter how great your marketing is or your packaging or the decor or the pictures. If 200 people give your product a one-star review, nobody's going to be fooled. Like never before, we have the benefit of learning from other people's experience. We can know up front, much more than we used to be able to, what a product or experience or a meal is going to be like. This is something like what we find in Ecclesiastes. We have this personal experience of what life is really like. Uh, the author of Ecclesiastes is on this quest to test and experiment with life, to see what it's like, what is its meaning, where can happiness and satisfaction be found, what is life all about? All of these questions that everyone is asking. And so he experiments with, he dives into these various areas that, uh, to experiment and do these test cases to see um, if there is meaning there or satisfaction. And he gives us his reviews. Um, unfortunately, most of them are one-star reviews, as we'll see. All of these things that look so great, that seem, the marketing and the appeal is so great, it turns out they, they don't fulfill what they seem to promise. But this is more than just the assessment of a random human. This is also God's word, the inspired word of God for us. And so we should read and heed and seek to be made wise by this all the more. So last week as we dove into this, we kind of started with the big picture because that's how uh, the author of Ecclesiastes starts, with the big picture. And he says, all of life, all is vanity. Everything. All is vanity. And today, the author begins to break that apart, to look at the individual pieces and parts of life um, that turn out to be vain and meaningless. And he takes us through this journey and as he does these experiments or test cases. Okay? So we're going to begin in one chapter 1, verse 12. Here's how he begins. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So again, the author is on this quest to see, search out and see if there is anything in life that is not vain, that 
breaks the mold of disappointing, frustrating, lets you down. Is there anything in life that finally provides the key to life and provides the significance and lasting satisfaction that we all want? Um, And we're going to see him do this through chapters 1 and 2. But right up front, he gives us his conclusion. So there's no cliffhanger here. He gives us a conclusion. There is nothing. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And the reason for that is because all of life has this striving after the wind, but never attaining it quality. All of life has this um, quality where our reach always exceeds, goes beyond what we can grasp. We, we know that there's more. We feel like there's, there's more out there, that there is significance and satisfaction and purpose and meaning, but we can never fully attain to it. And part of this is the crookedness of life. As he says there in verse 15, there is a crookedness to life that we cannot make straight, that we cannot even out and make right. This is getting at the the moral and spiritual fallenness of our world, sin, evil, oppression, injustice, that we cannot just solve. More than that, we are actually part of the problem. So we The author will go on to say in in chapter 7, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So we look out on the world and we see these problems. Everyone sees the problem with the world and we, we, we see it, but not only can we not ultimately fix it, we actually add to the problem. We are part of the problem. We contribute to it. What an unhappy business. So where do we turn? How can we find meaning in the midst of this vain vain life? The first test case that the author takes us on is turning to wisdom. Perhaps if we are wise, perhaps if we seek out wise living, wise reasoned living, that will provide the answer. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and, on the other hand, to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So what he's getting at here, this is a search for the true understanding of life and how it ought to be lived the search for what is uh, good, right, and true. Now, this is not necessarily a wisdom that begins with fear of the Lord, as elsewhere the Bible calls us to, but simply observing life, something that all of us can do. Observing life, trying to understand it and live it rightly, live it in the best way. In our day, you can think of things like TED Talks and podcasts and self-help books and seminars and life coaches and motivational speakers and much of what people look to religion to provide. How can I best order my life um, to align with what life seems to actually be like, what is good, right, and true, in order to find some sort of wholeness or peace or success or satisfaction? And if you go down this route, it usually involves things like self-control and patience and 
forgiveness and, and love and restraint and some sort of ethics like this. And so, we would probably assume, if we didn't already know the rest of Ecclesiastes, that the author would go on to say, this is it. I mean, this is what much of the Bible calls us to. This is what the book of Proverbs says, to live with this sort of wisdom. But in light of the search for the key to life, for something that breaks this mold of ultimately being vain and frustrating, wise living fails the test. This also is but a striving after the wind. And part of the reason for this is that wisdom and knowledge and the accumulation of wisdom and knowledge doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. It doesn't guarantee happiness. It also often comes with much vexation and sorrow. Um, I pointed out a few weeks ago that if you go through the lists, and you can find these online, of the world's most intelligent and most successful and most influential people, most of them also fall on the list of most chaotic and depressing lives. Not all of them, certainly not all of them, but many of them do. You can also think of those who give their lives to relieving the suffering and overcoming the evils in the world. Politicians and therapists and social workers and pastors. Does the wisdom that they seek to apply to those various situations and the knowledge they have guarantee that their lives are, are whole and peaceful and all of these things? Of course not. Wisdom is good. It is better than folly in many respects, but it doesn't guarantee happiness, and it doesn't bring the lasting significance and satisfaction that we all long for. Okay, one-star review. Moving on, what if we live merely for pleasure? What if we make our highest ideal a pursuit of pleasure, of feeling good, indulging our senses? This is the second test case that the author takes us on, starting in chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had, come, who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So he's still on this, this search. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was a reward, my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity 
and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So this is another approach to, approach to life that we see all, of our, all around us and that we see in our own hearts as well. This is about satisfying our appetites, our desires, our urges as much as possible, as quickly as possible, as continually as possible. And never really looking out too far, never really much thinking about the consequences, about how your actions are affecting others, never really thinking much about what is right, good, and true, just about how you feel. And there's many ways to do this, right? He, he goes through various things here, uh, food and drink, uh, home and garden improvement, trying to create your own little garden of Eden in our, in our homes and in our, on our property, wealth, power, sex. Another common one today is just experiences. Uh, most marketing today is aiming at trying to get you to buy into an experience. Right? Even if it's just a product, it's trying to get you to see yourself as somebody who would have that product. Somebody who would go on that vacation, stay at those hotels. It's an about an experience. And we have credit cards in part so that we can say yes to more of these things and feel great. The great irony, of course, is that we are notoriously poor judges of what makes us feel great. And we have very short memories, uh, very poor memories of how short-lived the experience is when we do feel great. In the language of C.S. Lewis, we, we chase this elusive thing called joy that is usually connected to some memory we have or some experience we had or some feeling that we had in the past and we want, we're on a search to try to find it again. But it seems that the search for joy never actually results in joy. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, happiness is a byproduct of wanting something more than happiness. To be right rela rightly related to God and our neighbor. If you see God as the non-negotiable non-negotiable good of your life, you will get happiness thrown in. If, however, you aim mainly at personal happiness, you will get neither. Now, we see here in this passage that, the, that there is some pleasure to be gained in life, in all of these things. Uh, he says, my heart found pleasure in all my toil. You can find pleasure in life. You can go through life just one, searching for one pleasure after another, and you can feel good. And we all want to believe that this is worth it, that this feeling good and finding temporary pleasure is worth it. I mean, there are so many sayings and phrases and bumper stickers and cups that tell you this. Don't worry, be happy, just have a good time, you only live once, keep calm, carry on. All of these things are trying to convince us that the pleasure of the moment is what matters most and is the final judge of a worthwhile and happy life. But once you stop, even briefly, and consider your life, once you are alone in that frightening place of just you and your mind, 
And without the, the sports game and the news and the social media and the podcasts, and it's quiet, you can't shake the sense that all appears vain and a striving after the wind. And so the author holds up these two ways of living, with wisdom, pursuing what is good and what right and true, at least as you understand it, with a sense of morality and reason, or flying by the seat of your pants, just pursuing whatever is most pleasurable in the moment. And the incredibly depressing message of Ecclesiastes is that both fail. Both fail to deliver what we want, lasting satisfaction and significance. In itself, being wise and good and successful and powerful gets you no further than living for yourself in the end. And one of the reasons for this is the great fact of life that nobody wants to face, and that is death. And that is where the author goes next. Chapter, or verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So there is, in a sense, it is better to be wise than foolish. Of course, you find that elsewhere in the Bible. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun... For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Again, our perhaps natural assumption, this, even if you're somebody who knows the Bible quite well, would be that wise living is fundamentally different and fundamentally better than foolish living. Perhaps we can easily point out the, the follies and the, the vanity of living merely for pleasure and self-indulgence. We, we see the consequences of that, the end result of that. But if all die, and who they were and all they accomplished 
is eventually forgotten, and all that they've worked for is handed off to someone who very well might squander it. What benefit is wisdom? One commentator says this, the preacher will argue that wisdom, pleasure, work, and possessions are very often the bubbles we live in to insulate ourselves from reality. And his needle, the sharp point he, point he uses to burst the bubbles, is death. So all the ways that we try to make our life count, whether through wise living, whether through being a good and loving person, whether working hard and finding success and accomplishing great things, whether through pleasure and just seeking, having a good time, all are equalized and shown to be what they actually are by death. Death opens our eyes to the reality of life, to see the vanity of things that we think are ultimate, the shortness of things that we think last, and the emptiness of things that we think satisfy. Now, this is not the final message in Ecclesiastes or the Bible, but it is one we have to face. If we don't, all that we will have and all that we will be doing as a people and as a church is just offering the best wisdom and self-help and observations of life that you can find all over the, over the place, but ultimately have no power over death and despair. And God is offering us so much more. The point of the Bible, the point of Ecclesiastes, and the point of the Bible, and the point of God's plans for us is not ultimately just to burst our bubbles and to leave us hopeless and despairing. I mentioned last week uh, one way to kind of think as you're reading Ecclesiastes is just consider that every sentence has an, an asterisk at the end, and down at the bottom there's a little note that says, yes, 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 but keep reading. Keep reading all the way to the end. There's more to the story. And as you do that, in Ecclesiastes and in the rest of the Bible, you find that death is not the last word. Death is not the final judge and interpreter of life. Death is real. It is a fearsome enemy brought about because of sin. But death does not have the final word, does not have the upper hand. Because death and the sin that caused it and the judgment that comes from that has been defeated by Jesus for all who come to him. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Through the sacrificial love and humble giving of himself, of Jesus, for our sins, and our clinging to that by faith, we become beloved children of God, beginning now and lasting into eternity. We are given a radical new identity, who we are, a new purpose for living, a new hope, new loves and desires. All of life is changed from the inside out. Now, the way that Ecclesiastes talks about this life change, this life with God here and now, catches us off guard. And so this final passage here we're going to look at in chapter 2 is one that you find several times in Ecclesiastes in, in various forms. 
and it can be a confusing one. But it begins to lead us to hope. So here's what it says, last three verses. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, I said, this can be a confusing passage. What is it saying? And perhaps it's best to first notice what it's not saying. It's not saying, just live for pleasure and self-indulgence. Don't think about the future. Don't think about eternity. Don't think about consequences to your actions. Um, If it were saying that, that all this talk of joy coming from the hand of God as a gift of God to the one who pleases God would have no meaning. It's also not saying, keep on searching for that thing that provides lasting significance in life. It's out there. You just haven't found it yet. You haven't found the right spouse, the right career, the right community, the right friend group, the right balance in your schedule, the right church, but you will just keep searching. But it's also not saying satisfaction is meaningless, just give up, live with despair, self-pity, and depression. Just lower your expectations. In light of the rest of Ecclesiastes and other passages like this, here is what seems to be the big idea. Accept your lot in life as God gives it to you. Live for the pleasure of God, him who, the one who pleases God. Live for the pleasure of God with your hope and trust in God, confident in the goodness of God. And then receive the normal things of life, such as eating and drinking and raising a family and working, and having a career, and playing, and gathering as a church, and starting a business, and all of these things we do, receive them as gifts of God, and do them with joy. Notice the emphasis throughout this passage on all of this being a gift of God, that joy itself is a, something that God gives us the ability to have. Apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? To the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. In other words, if we take what we have as gifts and not ends in themselves, not gods to be worshipped, not things to give our whole self to, then we can find joy in this seemingly vain life. One author puts it like this, Man must never lose the realization that there is a plan. And he must never begin to treat the common things of life, his food and drink and work, as though they were not the gift of God. Take up the common things of life and find your joy in the service of God there. In other words, when all of our balloons are busted, all our pretensions and false hopes and idolatrous idolatrous desires are frustrated and found to be vain, and we are brought humbly and empty to the welcoming, loving arms of God, we can begin to live with joy. 
we can begin to see what life is really like and really for. This past week, I came across a, a wonderful and moving example of this. A longtime catcher for the San Francisco Giants announced his retirement, retirement quite unexpectedly because he's just finished one of his best careers and he's only 34. His name is Buster Posey. By all accounts, he's a solid Christian. And one of the players that used to play with him, a pitcher by the name of Barry Zito, um, wrote a, a response to his retirement to Buster on Twitter. Here's what he said. Dear Buster Posey, you are a rare bird. You have what most of us MLB players never did, true perspective. You didn't bow down and worship the game of baseball as if it were your god. In the eyes of fans, you walked on water, but to you, it was just a game you loved to play, and that's why you played it so well. Perspective. You cared about the game, but didn't let def it define you the way we all did. Whether you were winning one of your three World Series titles or in the middle of a career-worst slump, you were the same buster, focused, friendly, and always professional. You were 60 feet from me in my greatest and worst moments in baseball. Your level-headed approach to the game inspired me and every other player that set foot in those Giants locker rooms through the years. I bet you had no idea. And now, you are doing what every MLB player wishes he could have done but never got to. Tell the game when you've had enough and walk away on top. Most of us were far too attached to the game and held on to it for dear life, terrified of the gaping hole that baseball would one day leave in our hearts when it told us we weren't good enough to play it anymore. I have a feeling you won't have this problem. Your heart is full of something bigger, the Lord above and your beautiful family. You are the same guy today as you were on May 29, 2010, when we all got to witness the spectacle that would lead our clubhouse, the Giants organization, and the entire Bay Area to three world championships. You know what my favorite part is about you? After winning every award possible in the game, your ego is no bigger and your self-worth no greater. Who can say that? You can, Buster. Thanks for all you did for us who love this great game of baseball. It's not just baseball that tempts us to put all our cards in and tempts us, seems to promise us this satisfaction, but ultimately one day leaves us with this gaping hole in our hearts. We, we resonate with that because we know it's true for all of us in various things that we give ourselves to in life. But if we approach life as a gift from God, to be lived for the pleasure of God and in the pleasure of God, we will find enjoyment in our toil. Let's pray.